As we're getting situated here, we're going to be continuing on our Second Samuel series. We have two weeks, this week and next week, and we are finished. Folks, I feel like you have earned a degree because you have been with us for a year in the study in First and Second Samuel. So we're going to be walking through a chapter today. If I would, um, it's going to be a little different in its, uh, its style, so I'll explain that in just a second. But uh, it is, uh, it's good to have uh, Caleb and Victoria here for, they're here for a little bit, and they come back in uh, end of December, and they're studying uh, in missionary training school and praying about where to serve in generally an unreached people group uh, uh, that could be anywhere from Ethiopia to Papua, you know? So you are, um, you're going through a lot of training. We just love having you guys back, so good to have you guys. Caleb and Victoria, it's good to have you all. Mitch and Cambry. Mitch and Cambry over here, our farmers from Missouri back. And so, Cambry, it's good to have your family and adopted family here with you. And I know there's a flight later, so if I go long, you just guys are you're okay. You can scoot out. Don't think they got offended or anything. So, um, anyway, uh, we're, we're just blessed that you guys are here. You know, one thing for Caleb and Victoria, because they're missionary training school and limited funds, they are looking for housing. And so we're just praying that, being a young couple, if anybody has a guest house or somewhere that they can stay, they'd be grateful. So um, make sure you say howdy to him. And uh, Rick Hoskins got back from Alaska. He's, he's out, you know, he's gone. He was at the first service. But um, anyway, it's just good to start to see some of the faces come back around. Chapter 22, I need to <clears throat> beg your grace on this one. If you've been coming to Creekside, we don't like, to, we identify ourselves as a gospel-centered church. We don't try to say we're a church of this or a church of this, but some people say, we are, a very, we are a Bible teaching church. So we do teach the Bible in here, verse by verse. We walk through scripture, which is a lot of fun when you're walking through an historical passage and you get a history geek like me who can't wait to break down all the nuances of what's going on. But then you come across things like this chapter, this chapter, which is a little different. So I need you to give me a little bit of grace in walking through a book that is really a psalm. This is Psalm 18, basically. And it's also um, what a lot of people call a song as well, David's song. So it's a song where he's just writing his gratefulness to God. So let me pray for me, and we'll jump in here, okay? Chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, let me pray. Please, Jesus, speak through me. I just pray, Lord, that you give me the right words, that, Lord, you make me an empty vessel, and uh, we're able just to speak your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. And, and um, hey, I know it's a little warm in here. I think the thermometer's out there thinking it's 40 degrees. And so, anyway, it's just, that's just the way it is. So if it gets too hot, Chip, Jeff, the door's right there. If it looks like people are passing out. After the second faint, go ahead and open it up. Anyway. All righty, uh, here we are, chapter 22, verse 1. Let's pick it up here. It says, um, And David spoke to the Lord, the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies in the hand of Saul. And he said, here it is, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield in the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, and you save me from violence. Wow, anybody pick up the common thread here? So go back to verse two if you could. It says, um, 
it says here, he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Folks, whenever we're reading scripture, we have to identify what time and period and where they were living. I want you to think about this. We did not necessarily have the comfort of being able to come to a secure building. Anytime you identified a rock in, in the time in which this was written was done so in a sense of security. If you look at uh, if you look at history, even the greatest impenetrable fortress of all time would be the Rock of Gibraltar, a British-owned uh, island to this day that nobody could breach this rock of this island. And in this particular case, this rock is something that is significant with shelter, with safety. It's something that if you were caught in the middle of winds, of rain, any time you would try to get under timber, you'd try to get under something made of thatch, it could cave in. But the very fact that a rock was always known as a sense of stability. So this was a readily identifiable understanding when you mentioned to somebody the strength of a rock. It was also something that brought David back even to his time of thinking when, remember when David and Jonathan made a pact and they said, David said, I'll meet you at this rock. I'll meet you at this place. And we're going to, we're going to meet at this, uh, uh, in, under the, the cover of this place. But it's not only just the rock in which God is, is, is being described by David. He is also describing him as mine. This is a very boastful and presumptuous and religious people would say arrogant statement. How dare you ever say he's mine? Religion does this. Religion has a great sense of expectation and rules that you must follow. Every one of you, if you do not, not follow these religious rules in this order, are going to be a failure. Christ's relationship with us breaks that mold to say this, I'm yours. David is saying something very profound. He's my rock, he's my fortress, my deliverer, verse three. He also goes on to say, he's my God. He's my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. And when people look at this at the time, they're thinking, how could you say he's yours? It, already, David is entering a personal relationship mode. As a matter of fact, David, for all his weaknesses, and we know he had a lot of weaknesses, David is looked at in, in, a, in a way that's just with high esteem by God. Because why? Because he recognizes who God is. Let me pick up, keep reading here. Verse four, I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. For the waves the waves of death encompassed me and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called and from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. That is a man who is recognizing that when he was in agony, he knew, he knew who to call on. Every one of us, speaking of call on, then the phone rings. So he knows how to call. But anyway, the, you're good. You praise the Lord is right. You got, so I, here's, here's what I'm thinking is when I'm, when I'm in distress, of course I call on God. It could be in a long-winded prayer. It could be in a telegraph prayer if a cop gets him back and he turns on his lights. You ever done that one? God get me out of this has been uttered off my lips more than ever. And it works. God doesn't need a long-winded prayer. You know, 
What's interesting in this is this is a prayer of thanksgiving and recognition. This entire chapter is nothing but an accumulation of thankfulness. And it's a lesson to you and I. What, when was the last time, if you think about it, you walked into God's presence and simply said, God, I need you to know how grateful I am. And to start breaking down the thankfulness of everything in your life. To simply say, God, I need you to, I need you to know how grateful I am for the people that love me. I'm thankful for what you've given me. I'm thankful for who you've allowed in my life. I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for this. Can you imagine if you went through an exhaustive prayer of just thankful, of being thankful and thankfulness? I've never met a bitter person who's walked out of a season of thankfulness with God. Never met them. I've ne- somebody said, I've never met a generous person. I've never met a, uh, a, a stingy person. Wait, wait. I've never met an unhealthy person who is a generous giver. I've heard that as well. People that, that just give generously t- tend to have a, a, a smile about them, a way about them. People who have a thankful heart, it is a fruit that comes out because there's just this sense of humility. I woke up one day, it was like a Monday or Tuesday. And it was the craziest thing. I woke up and I thought it was Sunday. And I was, I just, you know, I'm like, it's Sunday. And then this harsh reality hit, it was not Sunday. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. For a moment, I had the feeling that I was going to walk in with all of you. With all of you. And then it was gone. Like, no, I don't have that. And it was a sense of loss. Can you imagine if we had that same sense of loss of waking up thinking we could never speak to God again? Can you ever imagine such a horrendous thought to know we were all alone, that it was over? But the reality is you and I have the ability to meet with God, not just in here, but in anywhere and everywhere we go because he's yours. And oftentimes the enemy is going to lie to you the way David's just calling out and just yelling. He's he's, he's just spilling his guts here. And he's saying, when all these things, when the pains of Sheol, when hell just kind of moved in against me. God, you are my fortress. You are my deliverer. Let me tell you how God um, gives us strength the way he gave David strength. You sitting in here looking around thinking, you know what? Everyone else's world is better off than mine. You know what that is? That's the pangs of Sheol moving in against you. You haven't grasped that he's your God, that he's your fortress. He's your rock. And he is. He's not just the rock of this church. He's not just the hope of afterlife. He is the one who gives us absolute perfect love. But you see, religion is centered on advice. You're, I, I need you to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. Our relationship is centered on something completely different. Intervention. Intervention with us. I've never been through a formal intervention with someone. I've advised and kind of been with someone, but I've never pulled in an addict, sat them down and said, we're all intervening. We're putting you to a place of safety. And I've never really seen that firsthand. I've heard of it. I've heard there's times. But can you imagine if each one of us had an intervention spiritually to bring us back to a reality to say, God is your fortress, Kathy. He's your rock. He's your savior. 
I mean, have you, is, is it still hard to grasp that? Is it still hard in your mind to grasp the things you've done, the things you think, the dark places you've been around? Is it hard to grasp that he's yours? Do you know some of that is God giving us amazing mercy and grace because he thinks and he knows that you think he is a God of total discipline. And he protects us from constantly beating ourselves up in religious banter. Let me give you an example. James, you'll appreciate this. It was before 2000, no, for, it's for 2001, for 9-11. Airplanes uh, used to have the cockpit door open when they would take off. You, they would open the door. Do you remember that? You'd look down the aisle and see all the lights. And so there was a, I was coming back from South Africa and I was, the cockpit door was open. And I mean, I went up front of the plane. I'm just kind of like looking like I'm waiting in line for the bathroom. And just all these lights and the pilot comes out and speaks with a South African brogue. And he simply says, we don't know what 80% of those lights mean anyway. And I'm like, he just laughed and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. I mean, it's a 747 and, and there were, there were multiple pilots. There were two, there's a, um, co-pilot and co-pilot. Then they had a floater because it was 17 hours we were flying, right? So in, in the guy would, would take a break and the other one would take his seat or whatever. And so um, we just got to talking and he said, where are you sitting? I said, oh, 33, whatever. We said, um, I'll tell you what, meet me, uh, come back here at 1500, whatever, and meet me here at, at a certain time. And so I walked up Tell the flight attendant she opens the door. Hey, you know, it's like, hey, how you doing? Come on in. This is totally unbelievable, isn't it? Think in this day and time. Well, we're coming back in and we're approaching Hartsfield Airport in Atlanta, Georgia. And they have a jump seat, like a little flap down seat, where that, you know, I call it a jump seat. I don't know, maybe you call you and you strap in. And they said, well, you want to land with us? I said, yeah, are you kidding? We're in a 747, Jumbo 747. This thing is huge, double decker, right? I said, yes. And I mean, I, I can't stop smiling. They even make remark of it like your cheeks are going to freeze if you don't stop. I'm just, this is amazing. And he said one of the most profound things. He looked at me and said, do you want me to land it? Or they said, do you want us to land it? Or do you want the plane to land itself? I was like, what? No way. You can do that? He said, this plane's been flying itself since we took off. He said, it's all computer. It's the whole computer's guiding the entire path. I said, all right, let the... Let the plane land itself. It's all right. So I am on there at the landing of this plane, and we're descending a thousand. You start hearing this uh, computer one thousand, five hundred, two hundred, and it's just like and you, you, the intensity of it all. There's a totally different feel up there. You can't really see like you think. All you're seeing is kind of out there. And then we come along and we hit and we bump and we didn't feel a thing. Everybody else is, you know, how we're all jerked around from left to right. They feel nothing up there. Anyway, this thing comes in, just smooth and lands. And I have to wait because my bags are way in the back, right? And so everybody's coming off. They're leaving. And I'm thinking they had no idea that this plane landed itself. Like, I have this knowledge. Like, you have no idea what just happened. But neither did I. Here I was on automatic. God is an amazing God that he takes us, in a sense, 
to lift off at the beginning of the day and to bring us back at home at night. And what do we do? Now ah, the chicken's rubbery. My ears are popping. It takes 17 hours to go to, you know, South Africa. It took two weeks on a boat 100 years ago, right? Or 50 years ago. We aren't thankful for that. Oh, it was a bumpy ride. The seats are... Well, what do we do? We get consumed with those things that go on while we're on the ride. All the meanwhile, we are protected. And so some of you are in here thinking, man, I just cannot grasp that he's my God. You can't grasp that he's your pilot because you don't think you know how to fly a plane. As silly as it'd be if they came up to that seat and said, you and 33F, come here, I want you to fly a plane. How ridiculous, and that would never happen. As silly as absolutely, if not less than silly, that God would say, I want you to come up out of your seat and go fly this thing you call Christianity. I am the one driving this plane. I am the one taking you to a destination. You don't even know how you're going to get there. I am the one who, who puts you in that seat, and I am your pilot. I'm your guide, and I want you to trust me. So as much trust as we give to a pilot, sometimes it's hard for us to even trust who God is. We see religion, again, is based on advice. Relationship is built on intervention of God coming in and trying to break up our train of thought. Look at me to verse 17. We'll skip a few verses here, which is unusual. But again, this is a psalm, and I'd love for you to kind of take time and read on your own. Verse 17. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Go back to verse 17 and verse 18, if you could. Verse 17, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. How many of us are muddled in the waters of my future, of a relationship, of bills, of what I'm going to do, and he rescues you out of this. Look at the next verse, verse 18. It says, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. These are people that to this day hold us down. These are people who judge us. These are people who say, you'll never be able to do what you're going to do. This is, this is somebody who said, either at adolescence or even a point of adulthood, who said, you'll never be that kind of person, or you'll never do that kind of thing. I remember being, I remember when I worked really hard when I was a teenager and all of a sudden I had a, I had an uncle that said something and it was the most painful thing. He was a very, he was a blue collar worker who worked at a place that was, it took a lot of work. He was a hero to me, you know, World War II hero. And he said something that took me years to get over. He said, uh, my real name's Jason. So he said, he said, we're talking about jobs and everybody's working. He said, well, Jason doesn't have a real job. And I was working and, and really trying on my own in business. And it was one of the most painful areas of unacceptance, and I'll never forget it. It, was, it hurt. It was painful. And then, about 20 years later, he said something I don't think he remember. He looked at someone, and he was talking about me, and he said, 
Yeah, nobody does it better than Jason. And it was like it closed a chapter. A grown man, here I am, walking through, I just wanted the words of approval. Sometimes you and I have convinced ourselves a long time ago that we're failures, that it's hard for us, that we're going to continually, we're creatures of habit. We keep doing these things. It keep, keeps beating us down. But the reality is you and I have been given a gospel and we've been given a gospel that says this, you and I are totally forgiven. You and I are completely made new. I want you to look at this next verse, verse 19. It reads this way. It says, verse 19 here is, it says, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. So I was in Memphis uh, two weekends ago to do a wedding. I go up there. Y'all know where the headquarters is in Memphis? Anybody know? FedEx. Federal Express. My plane landed. Friends picked me up. And I looked what looked like a meteor shower of airplanes coming in. As far as you could see were white landing lights of planes moving in. Hundreds of planes come in every night and descend on Memphis with all these FedEx packages. They get sorted. Go on YouTube and watch this. It's fascinating because I did that night. Watch them get sorted and they're flown out at three in the morning and everything goes off. And I've been blown away. I said, this is absolutely incredible. What a, what a system. And you watch these videos and you can't think, you begin to think, how did anybody get so brilliant? And um, somebody's taking me to the airport and I'm making a remark about it. I said, do you ever get tired of seeing all these planes coming? Look like a military operation. It's amazing. I mean, they're landing just constantly. And he said, oh yeah, what's even more amazing is the, is the, the founder. I said, what happened? He said, well, he went to the University of Memphis right here. And he wrote his thesis on overnight delivery. And he failed. Because the professor said he wanted something that was realistic and go write another one. That was the owner and founder of Federal Express. And when I sit there and think in my mind, how many times we have told someone try to tell somebody, I don't care if it's a, where you work, if it's an ER, if it's an accounting firm, you try to tell somebody what you're doing and what God's doing in your life. And people look at you and they nod and you know deep down they think you're a failure because they see you the way sometimes you see you. God sees you totally different. God does amazing things in amazing ways. Um, our, we approach the bank about, we approached two banks last week, gave them our finances that we'd worked diligently on. Here we are. We can't wait to get this construction loan. Everything's moving along. The bank says everything needs to be turned in by a CPA who's independent from your church. Like, oh, really? We happen to have a meeting at an office regarding some odd thing at a, I, I, it just wasn't even connected. We meet at this office of a CPA firm. Not go, does not go to this church. He looks at us and says, I just really want to know more about what you're doing. And we told him what happened the day before or two days before. And he said, well, give us all your books, all your records, and we will certify everything at no charge. 
It was something we didn't ask for. We didn't pray for. Even yet, we, I mean, our prayer team had not get, even gotten the information. God goes before us. And so what happens is, you know, when, but when you, that happens and you begin to see what God's doing in our life, what do we, we're consumed more with those things that are around us that bring us down. So go back to this. Go back to when is the last time you and I walked into a place of total thanksgiving with God? What if you spent a week with your family and talking about things that you're grateful for? I mean, we come up to Thanksgiving. We're thankful for this. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for all these things. But what if we just come to God and say, God, thank you for every blessing you've, and just walk through them. What's going to be interesting is this. God expects no one in here to thank him. God does not even need our thankfulness. But it thrills him. It absolutely delights him. And so two things happen when you thank God. Number one, you worship him. You're giving worship. Number two, what you're doing is something amazing. You are starting to see the hand and the power of God where you've never seen it before in your life. All of a sudden you're thinking, wow, that's exactly God. You're the one who altered this. You're the one who gave me this. You're the one who did this. I don't know if you remember that one of those early verses that said, you saved me from violence. Did you see that one? Did you see that verse? Like you saved me from violence. What does that mean? It means exactly what it means. David is a warrior. The man has killed man's with his men with his bare hands. He says, God, there's been so many other times I've wanted to kill somebody, but you saved me from violence. Folks, you translate that to 2019 and Dale Mabry, you saved me from road rage all the time. All the time. Everything in me wants to be justified and running someone over and doing whatever. But, I, but God does something amazing. It's just, you know, I remember one time some, I was in a car, somebody cut me off and I said, I just don't do what are you do? And they said, they may be a member of your church. I said, it'll be one less member of my church. <laughs> but God keeps us from that. Next, um, I love this, verse 31. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He has made my feet like the feet of deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness has made me great. Go back, if you would, to verse 31. When you see these two words, this God, have you ever described anybody to where you've walked with someone most of your life you see a friend from another part of life and you bring them together and you're like, this guy, let me tell you, let me tell you this gal is. This guy, this gal usually has decades of fun in, in life together when you say that. This is David saying, oh, forget it. This God, there is no one like him. I can try all the adjectives. I can try all the descriptions. This God is incredible. And so he's saying this, his way is perfect. The only two times perfect is mentioned in scripture is heaven or the love that comes out of heaven. That's it. There is no mountain that's perfect. There's no person here that's perfect. There's no church that is perfect. His way is perfect. But you see, here's what happens. 
we start to look at this and we start to question ourselves. We start to, have you ever started to pray and you start worrying about what you're praying about? Happens to me all the time. You start worrying and you start thinking and you break out a notepad and I start, I got to do this. And I guess, guess what? You're out of prayer. You stop praying. Folks, we stink at prayer. Let's be honest. But God is one who says this. I don't judge you on that because I am not asking you to get in the pilot's seat. So when you do come to me, it's important. Forms of communication are important. One of the greatest tragedies that we could, we, we've had happen to us, which is what I'm addicted to, and I troll it more than anybody, except for Jim Barr, the guy's addicted to it, but social media, social, uh, Facebook, Instagram, what's everybody doing? It does something. You know what it does? Virtual communicate, virtual reality. Tyler and Nicole, I'm like, where'd you all go fishing? I feel like I was on your fishing trip. I start asking where you're going, and, and I feel like, but guess what? I'm not communicating with them. I see people at a wedding last night. Oh yeah, three kids, two, I know what, no, but I haven't talked to them. I feel virtually connected, like I'm okay with them. And then what happens is we feel that way if, we, if we're not careful in church. Here's what happens. If you don't have a solid walk where you're walking with, with the Lord during a week, you will feel virtually connected when you come in here corporately. There are two ways to approach God, corporately and individually. Corporately, we do this. Individually, folks, when you break open the word of God and start reading through scripture, I beg you to do this. Whenever you're going through something, I'm not saying journal every time, but start writing down on paper when you're going through something heavy and start writing down what you're going through and how that verse is hitting you. It will never hit you the same again. Write it down. There are verses that will jump out that you're... I remember there were times when verses were jumping out of the page to me. It was as real. I remember closing the Bible thinking, this is, this is incredible. I still can't find those verses to this day. Because why? The Bible is living and active and it hits you at a certain time. But you see, something amazing happens when we go to God and thank him. Think about this. God left all of glory to come to here to save us. He didn't lose his glory, but he left glory, right? He came to save us. When we go to God and pray and thank him, guess what happens? We leave all our misery and enter his glory. You walk into his perfect place, his perfect love, and everything makes sense. That's why save me from violence works, because he knows he's the only one. There's another psalm I didn't put up there. Psalm 1914 says this. Um, Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do, does that always happen to me? No. Do, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, Put me in front of Fox News and ask me the meditation of my heart after 30 minutes. It ain't there. Put me in front of, of unrighteousness and arrogance and mean people. And ask me what comes out of my mouth. It's not right. But yet God says this, make me your rock and your redeemer and understand when you come to me, I'm gonna give you the right meditations, the right words. All of us, 
are codependent on each other and dependent on the word of God and God to change our life. But you see, um, when David was walking through this, unconditional love was a radical concept. When you're talking like this, this would have been sissy talk, except he was the king of Israel and he'd cut your head off if he laughed at him. Nobody would have, like, what are you thinking? Why would you talk this way? You're not going to talk this kind of stuff. Can you imagine taking this stuff into a place where, where Christianity isn't welcome? Can you imagine taking it to a masculine environment where people are going to mock you? And they will. But what happens, it's amazing when you walk in and you go in with a sense of this, of this understanding of who God is in your life, God gives you the strength to do it. If you ever want to test the power of God's ability to move through you, here's what I want you to see. When an unbeliever walks in front of you and meets you and starts asking questions about getting saved, folks, you will be blown away at what comes out of your mouth. You will not believe the words that spew out of your mouth that come from the Holy Spirit and start talking about the greatness of God. You'll be amazed. You're going to talk and sit there and think, I had no idea I knew that scripture. I didn't know I sounded this intelligent. All these things are running through your head. And meanwhile, they're looking at you in total awe. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens. You see, um, you may only feel loved and accepted by God when you're performing. You know, if you feel like if I'm performing, if I'm doing this, I'm loved and accepted. The reality is, is this. His love, when it's perfect, means this. It cannot love you less than at another time. There is no loving you more for doing good and loving you less. That is not perfect love. It is without variation. God's love has no variation in it. But you know what does vary? You ready for this one? Our awareness of his presence. That varies. Because you know, when we forget God, guess what we do? We start reacting in different ways. We, we, we're, he, he's no longer our refuge. Look at verse 33 again. This God, he's my strong refuge. He's made my way blameless. Jump on down to the next verse I'm going to bring you to, verse 50 and 51. For this I will praise you, Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And now we're about to get into a psalm he wrote into his last words. A few verses of his last words. These are not his dying words. I think I preached this one time when I was eight much younger and much more new to scripture. I didn't have all the internet. That, you know, I remember thinking, this is his last words. And I'm thinking he's gasping. They're not. It's called an oracle. It's just, these are some of the last recorded words. So before he gives his, his words, um, verse one of chapter 23, watch what happens. It says, now these are the words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's quite an introduction, by the way. Can you imagine being... Can you imagine being given that title or that introduction? The Oracle of David, the last words of David, the son of Jesse. By the way, only other time son of Jesse's, Jesse's mentioned, his dad, was when he was plucked up to be a king. So Jesse was nobody. Back then, 
If you didn't have a great lineage or you weren't in high society, you were a nobody. Jesse was a nobody. They threw that in there to prove God works through the humblest of means. He says this, the anointed, the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Whoa, you ought to be asking yourself a question. How could you dare call David the sweet psalmist of Israel? This man murdered. He slept with women who were married, had their husbands killed. As a matter of fact, had their other friends killed. This man, I mean, think about it. If, I, if we had someone murdered in our fellowship and I brought to this front row right here the family of the murdered individual and I put him here and then I brought in on a microphone the person who murdered him. It's said, tell us who you are. This is a godly person. What an incredible person. Don't even mention the murder. Your eyes are going to be fixed on this row, looking over, thinking, who? Well, how could you describe the guy as this? How could he even speak? Look, look at the pain. Look at, look at what's happening. And so we see that guy through that. That's all we see. And you're completely justified and completely right in filtering your view of this guy up here with the pain and the suffering, it's right here. Now think of this. What if I brought you up? And what if I brought you to a place right here? And you had confessed to me weaknesses and troubles and temptations and things that held you down. And we identified all those things. And I put you here. And I would say, speak of your faith. God is great. He's wonderful. He's my savior. He's my rock. He's my fortress. All eyes would be on, what about this thing? Was your fortress there? What about this thing? What was your fortress? Th think about all those things. Any one of you, if I were to call you up here right now and identify all your weaknesses, could you stand up here and say, he's my rock, he's my fortress, in spite of, of what's right up here, everything that has held you down, everything that has given you fear, everything that has wrecked you, could you do it? You see, our eyes would be polluted. Our eyes would look at the fears. God sees none of the front row of the demise of who you are spiritually. He sees none of the, of the, of the, of the ineffective practices. He sees none of the constant unrepentant sin. He sees none of the past mistakes. He sees none of the alcoholism that you've suffered through. He sees none of the, of the, of the things you've done to hurt people. He sees none of this when he sees you. We do but he doesn't. And so when you judge the Lord's strength, when you, when you judge that rock compared to all the other little rocks, you're doing yourself a great misservice. You will never be truly accepted and loved by mankind, which is why when David just spews these words out sometimes, you just think it doesn't make sense. What do I mean? Watch, watch his words. Watch his words. It's just a few verses. The spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. That's a pretty bold statement. Nobody had made that statement before. The spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when the one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them in the morning light like the sun shining forth in a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass grow to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he's made an everlasting, with me an everlasting covenant. 
ordered in all things and secure, for he will not cause to prosper. For, I'm sorry, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Two more verses. But worthless men, watch this. Your last two verses you recorded. Odd, right? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for the neck can be taken away from the hand with the hand. The man who touches him arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they're utterly consumed with fire. Why would you say that? Psalm 116, by the way, David wrote, and you know what's crazy? It's a beautiful psalm. The whole thing, you could read it at a funeral, and it's the most beautiful thing. God has restored my soul. He's returned ourselves to righteousness. And, you know, my walk, my feet walk in the land of the living. There's no more tears, no more fears. And right smack dab in the middle of the psalm, David writes, all men are bandits and liars. <laughs> Try reading that. You know why I think, it, I think because so many times we put our hope in people and people will let us down. And I'm going to identify the person who's let you down the most. You. You'll be your greatest enemy. You'll be the one that convinces yourself that you're a liar, that you're a fake. You'll be the one that sees you in a way you think others do not. But God sees you in a whole new way. I know I've told you the story before, but this is one of those times I don't care because it's that good. Bear with me if you've heard it, but a few of you have been on here. You ever read uh, Sports Illustrated, Rick O'Reilly, in the back? He hasn't written for him for 20 years, so I'm really old. His back at Sports Illustrated, Rick O'Reilly used to write the funniest paper, uh, column. We wrote a column one day about um, a man named Lynn Geiger who needed a lung transplant. As a matter of fact, he was so bad off needing a lung transplant that he had a pager on him that would call him when a lung came in. And he was shopping with his wife at a funeral home for a casket and some other things. And the pager went off. He knew to go immediately to Emory Hospital where a plane was coming in from Roanoke, Virginia. And it carried the lung of a 17-year-old girl. There was a depression medicine that had just come out. This depression medicine had, uh, had counteractive results. And as a matter of fact, they took it off the market within months because people took their lives. This young girl, volleyball star, at a high school in Virginia, took her life when she was an organ donor. The lung was transplanted into him, and it succeeded. And in one year, because of lifelink, there was a prohibition about writing or calling a family. But after one year, they could. And he wrote a letter, and he sent a letter, and he said, I just want to thank you, and if you would ever allow me to visit, I would, because I'd go up there for business. And so she, he went to Virginia after he's invited, knocked on the door of this home. They opened the door. And there he was, and it was awkward. The parents of the girl who had died, the girl who was the apple of the dad's eye, he, she, he walks in, they meet, they greet in the foyer, and eventually go to the sitting room, and eventually eating dinner. And throughout dinner, chuckles started happening, laughter and stories. And eventually they gained a friend. And after three hours of a visit, they're walking out the door. He gets to the door, and the he says, I just can't thank you enough. I hope you'll have me again. And the wife says, if you'll just, if I could just ask one favor. And he's thinking, what is it? What would the favor be? I mean, live a life that's not in vain. Live a life that's going to honor my daughter. What is it? She said, may I put my ear to your chest so I can hear my daughter breathe one more time. 
of all the things you and I try to do, to, to try to impress God, but all the things we do that we think we can bring him a sense of pride, all God wants to do is come alongside of us to say, I want to hear my son in you. So when he says, let the meditations of your heart and the words of your mouth be acceptable, it's because my son's in you. You and I carry more power than David in Scripture. You and I carry the power of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing how Rick Riley ended the article. They began to run 5K races. And they began running races, and he said the last one he ran because the medicine for the lung transplant began to wear him out. They knew that this was probably the last 5K. The father... And Lynn Geiger, the lung transplant, ran that last 5K and didn't say a word. The father just wanted to hear the breathing of his daughter. But what Rick said was so profound. He said, Rick, or uh, um, Lynn and the father, when they crossed that line, they finished the race, the three of them. It isn't that amazing about you and I. We're not alone. That when you walk in here, you're not alone. When you go out that door, you're not alone. When you start to feel like all men are bandits and liars, like David said, you're not alone. And when you think you don't know how to fly a plane, you were never meant to fly it anyway. Because he's your savior. He's your rock. He's your salvation. He is your deliverer even from yourself. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for who you are in our life. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of life that you've given us in you. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us whole, that you have brought us to a place of understanding that we're not in charge and we're not in control. Thank God for it. And Lord, for all the times, Lord, that we've forgotten you there, bring us back to realization that you are there. And the key to it is the key of thankfulness. The key of approaching you, not feeling guilty for asking, but God approaching you with the gift of thanksgiving. And in that, you are gonna give us not only a clarity in what we have, but an ability to pray for what we do not have that we know you want in our life. Lord, thank you again for each and every one in here. If there be anyone in here who's never received the ability to trust you as their Savior, to know you as the one who can give life to anyone in you, Lord, I'd pray they just talk to the person who brought them or talk to one of us. And Lord, for those of us who've walked with you, thank you, Jesus, that you made it this easy. Thank you, Lord, that you came not to be served, but to serve. And the idea that we wake up every day with a Lord who wishes to serve us blows our mind and our heart. But Lord, thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we close?